Talky bits start getting activated again. You know, a lot comes back, huh? Now that the end of the retreat is in sight, whether you know it or not, you're trying to figure out how to describe it. (laughs) And I know this because you come and see me. (laughs) and then you try to describe it. So, uh, instead of doing the talk that I was going to do earlier, I decided to do a talk about how to describe it. (laughs) Or what I've heard about how you describe it. Just as a way of mirroring back to you um, some of what we actually experience sitting in the other chair trying to pry things out of you. So that role, you know, being a teacher sitting in the other chair for these meetings that we have with you, that's a very privileged role because we see good human beings at their most unconcealed and vulnerable. So even though I know you don't always tell me the real deal, (laughs) although maybe you blurted out on your way out the door, bye, and by the way, I had... (laughs) That's what we call drop and dash in the business. It's like a hit and run, you know, but... Okay, if that's the way you need to get it out, that's okay with me. So we're there in the chair talking with you. and So when you're describing it to us in that kind of context, very often we'll ask you questions to help you articulate what you're noticing, to help you put it into a meditative framework or a dharma framework. So if you were going home and you were describing what happened here, if you were going back to your home song or your home teacher, you might be saying things like, uh, <clears throat> I'm clearer about wise effort and what that is, or I'm better at working with hindrances, in particular hindrance X, the one that came up all the time. Or maybe you'd say, uh, now I realize how important metta is and I've gotten a lot better at recognizing its presence when it's there. Or maybe you'd say, well, I have an idea now what they're talking about when they're talking about equanimity and it doesn't mean you just lay down and let things roll over you. Or maybe you'd say something like, um, I want to do concentration practice next. Or maybe you'd say, oh, I'm getting just a little bit of an intuition or a little bit of inkling about what they're talking about when they talk about not-self. Now I get it doesn't mean I don't exist or that I shouldn't exist or I need to get rid of my ego or any of that stuff. It means something other than that. Okay. So that's how you might talk about what's happened here if you're talking to your home teacher or your own teacher or your sangha your people in CDL or 
DPP or QYX or <laughs> any of those other programs. Now, if you're trying to describe what happened here to people who know you, like people at work or <laughs> maybe people in your family who are not practitioners, I will give you some words of advice here. <laughs> So, the first thing to know is that when they say, how was it? That's a social question. <laughs> you know what those are? Social questions? That's when you go into work and they, and they say, hey, good morning, how are you? And you go, how, good, how are you? And they go, good. And then you get your coffee and you go to your desk. Right? Social question, how, how was it? So, um, in that kind of case, I, I would probably be inclined to say something like, since they think you've been on a vacation. <laughs> you do realize that, right? You've been on vacation. That you should say, good, the food was great, I could have used a little more protein. Right? That's what you say. It. Okay. But then there's this whole third area of how you would describe it, which is how you describe your experience to yourself. And I want to spend most of the time in that particular area. Because we tend to really come from a success or failure model, don't we? Um, but how can you judge that kind of thing in this kind of context? What would that even look like? So, but you might notice that there's an impulse that comes up along the lines of wanting to put it in a bag and take it home, you know? Like you've been out shopping, well, here's my retreat, or maybe it's more like if you're uh, the, a different type of achiever, maybe you kind of want to mount it on the wall, you know, like a certificate or a diploma or something like that. Or maybe you want to uh, show it to your mother <laughs> and get her approval and understanding of why you've been here. <laughs> which might take a little bit of explaining take it from me although understanding does grow over time with those around us because they may not under know exactly what we're doing but we seem to be improving <laughs> I can remember once when I uh, told a, a co-worker of mine that I was actually leaving a job to go, go and do the three-month retreat. She looked at me and she went. And I could tell she was thinking. And she said, well, if you think it'll help. And I didn't go back to that job, so she never found out, you know, but... 
So it's hard to explain, but if, but if we were really going to explain it to ourselves, when I was thinking about this and thinking about what I've heard from you, three different kind of broad categories came up for possible explanation of some of the, some of the doings, some of the arising, some of the openings, some of the understandings that I've seen happen with you here. And the first thing that I noticed is that there's something about this whole process that is ineffable. You know that word, ineffable? It means you can't really put it into words, you can't really explain it fully. There's something that you can't quite put your hands on. It's not something that can be verbally conveyed fully to yourself or to someone else. It's got a whole different dimension to it. So that's the first piece of it. This is ineffable. But a second thing that I've heard from people over and over again is, and you could take these comments as being one of two things, depending on how you're telling the story to yourself. You could take this axis as being either uh, that the whole thing was uh, confusing and uh, counterintuitive, or you could frame it as uh, a place where understanding uh, opened and when some wisdom actually arose. So you could focus on what you didn't experience or what you didn't accomplish or what you didn't understand. Or you could really frame it as these are what some of the learnings were. This is some of the way that wisdom opened in the mind. So, you know, I've heard things like, well, you know, when I came here, I now realize that I really had no idea how to meditate. So is that uh, a defeat or is that a success at having reframed that confusion? Some of what I've heard is that uh, along the lines of, I realize now that conditioned ideas uh, about success and failure aren't really reliable. That, for instance, just because there are strong emotions arising or there are lots of hindrances or the breath is hard to find, that doesn't mean that that's a mistake or that's a failure. I've heard that clarifying and purifying motivation for practice is a really, really important piece of this. Totally setting aside the whole success and failure, or if you really are an achiever, uh, conquer or be defeated model of this. That that's really not what's going on here. I've heard people say things like, well now I understand that things cycle. That you can have a, a day where it's really difficult 
or two or three or four days where it's really difficult. And then suddenly, it's completely different. Or you can have a sitting where it's easy and flowing and the next sitting, you sit down, you unfold your blanket in exactly the same way that you've learned is the key to having good concentration. Right? You tuck your magic mala under your cushion in exactly the same way. But it doesn't work. Hmm. An insight into the fact that our span of control is not what we think it is. We don't quite understand what we control and what we can't. Oh, that means that in some way that whole model we have for things is seriously askew. Now, while that is disappointing to realize that we're actually not responsible for what we experience, on the other hand, it's rather liberating to realize that that actually has an upside. So maybe in the cultivation of wisdom, we notice, start noticing wholesome states. Oh my God, I had some meta. I saw this person that I find unpleasant and instead of you know, feeling aversion, I felt compassion. Yeah. Oh, insight into the fact that uh, the experience is not uh, controlled by the sense contact, by the seeing, that it's not intrinsic in the person or in your relationship to them, right? There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Hmm. So I've heard that it's better to give up control and ride the wave than it is trying to run for the (laughs) the beach. (laughs) Run for the beach or hold out your hand and say, stop, not viable. So along another axis, which you might want to call the axis of, boy, this was painful. <laughs> or this was not without pain, this, this retreat stuff. Or you could call it the axis of healing. Hmm, which way to frame? The axis of healing or the axis of pain? So, like one of the interesting uh, things that I heard is from an older retreatant who basically said one of the things that he had really appreciated about uh, being here is realizing how completely uh, changed in some way his mind is from the mind he had when he was 30. Ah, the fruits of the practice. Drip in a bucket. But when it's dripping for 40 years, there's a lot of water in there. Healing, right? Healing a little bit at a time. Or how about um, 
moving past a binary understanding of good and bad, or wholesome and unwholesome. You know, very often we come from religious traditions or socialization where there's good and there's bad, and there's good emotions and good feelings and bad emotions and bad feelings. And we're not supposed to have the bad emotions and the bad feelings. But here we say, what are your emotions? What are your feelings? What are you actually experiencing? Treat it all the same. Treat it all the same. Give it equal valence. Yes, there's clarity about what's skillful and what's not skillful. It's clear we don't want the unskillful to proliferate, but the skillful and the unskillful are equally worthy of our attentiveness. So we heal the binary. We heal the binary by actually learning how to bring and deploy and employ the wholesome qualities and resources of our mind and bring them into connection with what is unwholesome, what is suffering, what is difficult. Isn't that what's happening when we're turning mindfulness towards the hindrances or towards painful states of body and mind? Bringing mindfulness and metta and compassion. So we also can have very painful memories and emotions come up in practice. Is this not true? All the way from body aches, body pains, body holdings, trauma reactions, uh, various contractions and unpleasantness tied up in memory, tied up in stories. That's the painful part. The healing part is learning to be in wise relationship when this is being experienced to learn how to be skillful in touching these places of contraction, places of suffering, of not being so afraid of them, not being so identified with them, not holding on to them in an unskillful way. Hmm. Then there's the piece about Recognizing when stories are present and giving them their dignity in the telling when the time is there for that. When those stories need to be brought forward and be heard by the teacher or heard by another person. Bringing them forward as important. And then realizing as we look at them in the present What is this story as a present tense experience? It's a memory. It's a thought. It's a belief. It's an emotion. It's a physical sensation. All of which have the nature of impermanence like everything else. And all of which will pass away. 
part of conditioned phenomenon. Hmm. Painful and healing. And there's a lot of unbinding that can happen in these kinds of arisings. So, it's your fate as retreatants to be the recipients of bad poetry. (laughs) So, here's one I wrote today. (laughs) And I'm sure uh, Mary Oliver is not worried about me. But this actually came out of my day-to-day hearing you. So this is... When I was young and frightened and waves were getting high, I went into the lighthouse and up the stairs I climbed. And in that little cabin above the stormy sea, I went about protecting a certain kind of me. But in the system's hearing the water on the stone, the breaking and the crashing, the making of the foam. I found a kind of cradle, a safe place to come home. I had an intuition this rocking might discharge the fear that this great ocean could ever cause me harm. The yogi as muse. Hmm. So the third axis is that of hmm, not stress reduction, but opening and balance. Opening and balancing. In an earlier talk, I was snickering a little bit about how sometimes people wind up coming on retreats having entered in through the door of mindfulness-based stress reduction and might wind up, you know, at a place like Spirit Rock for something like this and not quite... Yeah, well, you saw. (laughs) So... So it's not stress reduction, but in the larger sense, it is big stress reduction, the big stress reduction. And there's an opening and balancing piece of this, of course, that you come in and you talk about. So it's, you talk about recovering access to the senses. moving away from being lost all the time and that swirl of barely conscious thought that is going on and on and on to the exclusion of every other kind of experience. So you talk about recovering access to the senses. Of accessing and uh, developing and restoring presence to experience. 
being able to be present to what you're experiencing, to recognize it and know it. And there's a lot in that, isn't there? Because in order to do that, to access, develop, and restore presence to experience, you have to have the experience of getting knocked over, falling down, lying on the ground with the dust swirling around your head, and somehow figuring out how you're going to pick yourself back up, dust yourself off, (laughs) recollect, and keep going. So, in this, you really see that the qualities of heart are pulled on, are developed, are called for in order to have this capacity to get thrown off the horse really hard, fall hard, cry in despair, have enough courage, have enough faith, have enough willingness, have enough patience, have enough resolve to try it again. So then I hear about seeing and challenging uh, whatever your personal set point was when you came in. You know that phrase, set point? So it basically means, for instance, it's often talked about in terms of weight. You know, like for a lot of people, there's a certain weight their body tends to carry, and it's hard for them to maintain, uh, for instance, to lose weight if their uh, set point is at a certain level. Or, um, you know, it's it's kind of like a a stasis or stability within the system around a particular function or axis. So when you come into retreat, We all have our own particular set point along the line of things like mindfulness, concentration, uh, all the other seven factors of awakening. So in order to do this practice, we have to really push back against that, right? Push back against, for instance, tendencies to sloth and torpor, or uh, push back against or redirect our tendencies towards wanting or craving or uh, doubt or towards uh, aversion or anger. We have to remember the primary thing that we're doing and again and again say, no, I know that's how it usually flows, I know how it usually goes, but I don't want it to flow that way, I don't want it to go that way, I want to be conscious with this as it happens, so that I can begin the process of learning how to actually turn this movement of mind into an object of meditation or redirect this in a a different kind of way. Other than the way my energy just naturally flows into certain uh, ways of suffering. So there's a lot in that. That's why it's not so simple as just following the breath, right? You're following the breath and then all the other stuff starts happening and it has to be met. So we hear about that from you. We hear about learning to trust 
your own perception of the present experience. This is a hard one for a lot of us. Because we have to get down below the idea of things and how they are, or our past experience of how something was, or what we've read in books about how it should be, or what it says on the map, or how it was last set. But to remember and remind ourselves over and over again, well, what is it that's actually happening now? What? What is it right now? So trusting this moment-by-moment awareness, learning to trust ourselves in a rock-bottom way, in a way where we can justifiably say, I know my experience. This is moving into a position of inner authority in relationship to our knowing. And this is rare to come by in this world, especially for those of us who are conditioned to distrust our own direct knowing. But to directly know what's going on in our heart, what's going on in our mind, what's going on in the body, Even being aware when our particular version of the self-view arises and shows itself. Oh yeah, this is, this is uh, assembled Winnie. Part of our opening and learning comes around seeing how many different versions of self actually exist. How many different versions of self have you seen on this retreat? Well, there's the one you you walked in with. (laughs) Where is that one right now? Is it back online or does it feel different at the moment? So there's the self that is certain sets of body sensations. You know, maybe old sorrows or particular forms of pleasant flow or the feeling of your feet touching the ground as you do walking. That version of the self, the self that takes birth in physical sensation. And then there's the flow, the self that takes birth in certain memories. This is, this is the me, this is how I am, this is uh, what happened, this is what I know, this is how I am, this is how I will be, forever and ever, amen. Right? There's that, that can be there sometime. There's the version of the self that isn't the good enough self. That's, oh, not not good enough. The hopeless self. That's never going to get it. And then there's the conquering self. 
You know, Donald was talking last night about the good student self or the I'm going to nail this puppy <laughs> self, right? I'm going to stick the landing <laughs> in this meditation stuff. So many different selves, right? They can expand and contract and morph. Starting to see that actually what we may have understood or known to be a consistent self or a consistent self-view actually is not that at all when you look more closely. Hmm. Which always poses the question, well, if I don't exist like that, what does that mean? What does it mean if I don't exist like that? Does it mean I don't exist? Probably not. But this is part of the opening and part of the balancing. Huh. It's an interesting thing to realize that you actually don't need to have that assembled, familiar self in gear and driving the car in order to make your way through traffic in a way that's uh, perfectly uh, safe. Hmm. Oh, I see. It comes and goes, and actually, when it's not there, as long as there's presence, it's actually not really necessary. Hmm. Interesting learning. So... Here's another Dharma teacher poem. So, I don't know what I'm doing, but maybe that's okay. Just keep the mind in present tense is what to do, they say. Incline the mind to move into a bright, receptive state, letting what is happening express in its own way. Sensations of the simple breath exactly as they are provide a place to focus first to feel what's going on. There's nothing to make happen. Things happen on their own. Causes and conditions unfolding due to law. In the present moment, things arise and pass away. And if I lose the thread of this, I'll reconnect again. There is no final failure and no final win. Awareness lost, awareness found. Keep coming back again. And while I may be wishing things would straighten out, I'll try to ride awareness even when it bucks. The cure is in the staying with what is happening now and learning how to harmonize no matter what the sound. And that's pretty much it, isn't it? Learning how to harmonize no matter what the sound, the metaphorical sound. Hmm. I remember... um, coming off the three-month retreat at IMS once, and 
This was back in the days when the, the three-month retreat was a three-month retreat. So if you were there, you were there for three months and the teaching group was there for three months. So we all went through it together. And at the end of the retreat, when silence was broken, of course, this was a very big deal because the container was held in a way that was quite strict. And uh, sometimes they would bring in other Buddhist teachers to speak to the group. One year they brought a Korean Zen master and one year they brought uh, Lama Surya Das. And he himself had just completed a three-year, three-month, three-week, three-day retreat. So he came in, and one of the first things I noticed was, oh, this guy kind of looks like a mountain, and he kind of sits like a mountain, if you know what I mean. So there was this immense presence. Oh, you know? And then... uh, he started to talk and he was, he was really very funny. Good sense of humor. That's always a good sign in a teacher. <laughs> so he started talking and he was talking about retreat and coming off retreat and his experiences coming off retreat. And it was very, very light and funny. And then he got to a certain point and he stopped. And he started to cry. And he said, it's precious, holy dharma. And now you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.